0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 18th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from the World Economic Forum here at Davos. I'm Carlotta Rubello, Coming up on today's programme...
1: I repeat my call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, and a process that leads to sustained peace for Israelis and Palestinians based on a two-state solution.
0: Therefore, for Davos and its allies on the Middle East will assess the meetings on the sidelines. Also on the show…
1: I am totally convinced, actually, that Europe is one of the pillars of sustainability and stability in the world today.
0: The IMF declares some optimism for this year's global economic outlook. We'll hear the take from the Governor of the Bank of Portugal. As Switzerland hosts, the world here at Davos we will be asking the country's head of presence what makes a good host. And we'll be bringing you lighter stories from the mountain and others that you may have missed from the World Economic Forum. All that right here on The Briefing, live from Davos, with me, Carlotta Rebello. Iran's foreign minister is in Davos carrying the message that attacks against Israel and its interest by the axis of resistance will stop if the Gaza war ends. He also warned that the conflict could heighten tensions across the Middle East. Day four so far has also been marked by appearances by Isaac Herzog, President of Israel, and Mohammed Shia al-Sudani, the Prime Minister of Iraq. With the roundup of the day so far, I'm joined by Fabian Kinzelman, the editor and international correspondent for Handel Zeitung. Hello, Fabian.
2: Hi, Kalata. Thank you. Nice to you.
0: see you here in the studio. It's shipping up to be a busy day four already. So what do we know so far?
2: Oh, we know for sure that Davos is not that, as I thought last year a little bit. But from China's number two to the head of the European Union, the US and the Iranian foreign minister, it felt like everyone wanted to be on a big stage this year. Like there's, uh, There are, like, I think, three dominating topics, which are AI, um, of course, the US elections in the end of the year, and Ukraine. And from those topics, they are really dominating every single
0: headline and every every conversation both inside the Congress Center and outside. Exactly. You're
2: absolutely right. That's that's how it works, yeah.
0: You were this morning, you were telling me at the breakfast at
2: Ukraine House. What are some of the takeaways from that? Um that the support for Ukraine is unbroken in the West, but like that Western countries really like in terms of in terms of like tight budgets, they really have to find more creative ways And new solutions for like aiding packages to Ukraine. And they are thinking way, they are way more open. They are thinking and speaking louder about confiscating Russian assets.
0: And of course, with a global election year, there is also fears that support for Ukraine might change when leadership changes. But let's turn to the big focus today, which is, of course, all eyes are on the Middle East. Uh, Is Davos looking like the forum for uh, solving this conflict?
2: who did it ever. Um, I think it's pretty clear now that uh, Israel is using the platform very well to gather support support and sympathy, which they don't have in every part of the world. Um, and they didn't only bring their president, but also, for example, Hamas hostages and people who lost family members. Um, but what you can clearly say is like, there are no Palestinians here or visible. And if we know one thing for sure, then the there won't be peace if not all parties are brought on the table. And do you think mediation can happen here? <sighs> I think Davos is not a place where actually negotiations happen, but Davos is a starting place for debate or it's a place where debate continues or where debates moves shifts. Um, And I think that's the interesting thing about it.
0: No, it is day four. There's still one day to go. And today, as we've been describing so far, it is quite a significant one when it comes to the agenda of what's in store for the week. But it's surprisingly the the U.S. delegation has already left, a quite small U.S. delegation, we should say. What does that tell us?
2: It's not like the full delegation already left. Some are still here. And uh, I heard that the second gentleman, Duke Amhoff, has just arrived in Davos too. Um, I wouldn't take that too seriously um, because ministers rarely attend a full week. And um, and the senators and members of Congress in the U.S. Uh, have some discussions to solve at home, e.g. the next aid package for Ukraine. Um, but I think like they were really intimidated by the big Chinese delegation. And uh, I think they tried to set a statement by having like two high ranking officials on a big stage, which was like the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and the Foreign Minister, Antony Blinken. And of course, John Kerry was seen all over town in the beginning of the week.
0: Yes, and John Kerry, of course, in uh, everyone's, a name that was in everyone's mouth with the headline that he uh, will be uh, stepping down yes. and rumors of joining the Biden campaign.
2: Yeah, I mean... I I don't know about the rumors yet, but he's definitely stepping down. Um, His Chinese counterpart is also stepping down. So um, that will be interesting where climate talks between two big states are heading after both of them will leave.
0: Now, let's uh, continue with a look at the day and the discussions happening in relation to the Middle East. How tied is the security of the Red Sea to the developments that are happening in Gaza and how it pertains to global trade as well?
2: Yeah. Um, that definitely exposes um, a weak point in maritime trade. I mean, already last month, four of the five biggest readers have completely stopped shipping in the Red Sea. And, um, and of course, like for the world and um, for the Western world, especially, it's another point of escalation, which is taking up resources.
0: And what are your big takeaways from the week so far, Dan?
2: Um, I think I can only repeat that Davos is not dead and that people really feel the need to meet and exchange and that AI is the hottest topic. Just like walking along the promenade here, you see like AI everywhere. And I think it's not going away as like crypto has. Crypto was big like one and a half years ago at the WEF, which was taking place in May 2022 but then like not seen after FTX broke down but like AI is um, will stay and I certainly learned a lot about which developments we can expect this year and that most of the challenges we will see are yet um, unknown but will be huge
0: well there's a day and a half to go so far uh, now what can else can we expect Fabian
2: um I think more on the macro perspective and the uh, um, perspectives for the year ahead uh, EGS, like important finance ministers are on stage tomorrow debating. Um, I think, I don't know if you hear it, but lots of more thoughts throats like mine and cracked voices after already like four days of like talking and meeting people. It's like that was a huge speed dating thingy. And, um, and then I also hope, like, hopefully one last evening of inspiring gatherings.
0: Yes, of course, the the nightcaps here at Davos are famous for a reason. Oh,
2: they are great.
0: <laughs> we'll keep no those mistake. off air. Uh, Fabian Kinzelman, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us here in Davos. Now in London, here's Emma Searle with today's other news headlines.
3: Thanks, Carlotta. Iranian authorities say that at least nine people have been killed after Pakistan carried out retaliatory missile strikes inside Iran's borders. Islamabad claims it was targeting terrorist hideouts and that the purpose of the attack was in pursuit of Pakistan's own security and national interest. This comes one day after Iran carried out a missile and drone attack on western Pakistan. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has held his annual news briefing in Moscow, where he warned of mounting nuclear risks and suggested Ukraine will endure the same fate as Afghanistan, with the US withdrawing military support. Meanwhile, all flights were briefly suspended in and out of Moscow airport on Thursday morning, a move sometimes taken by Russia as a precaution in the event of the threat of Ukrainian drone strikes. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was detained at a German airport on Wednesday for allegedly failing to declare a luxury watch he was planning to auction for charity. The Hollywood actor was held for three hours at Munich Airport under investigation for tax evasion. Schwarzenegger eventually paid the tax, but only after overcoming a number of problems. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Carlotta.
0: Thanks, Emma. The global economy is set to receive a boost in 2024 from a slightly stronger than anticipated performance last year, according to the head of the International Monetary Fund. Speaking in Davos, Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva emphasized that the global economy has shown remarkable resilience, with 2023 surpassing expectations to some extent. However, she also highlighted that ongoing geopolitical tensions could pose potential risks in leading to increased price pressures and challenges in the supply chain chain during 2024 well to take a long view at some of these topics and also a look at the economy back home i'm joined now by mario centeno the governor of the bank of portugal bon dia
1: <laughs> bon dia and thank you for having me.
0: a pleasure having you here with us in our studio in davos let's start by talking about the week so far we're entering day four how's it going so far for you
1: It has been good. Davos always comes with with surprises. Some of our expectations are matched, others are challenged. That's the the usual process. I think the overall mood going forward and uh, in the long term, as you put it, is positive. People last year were much more uh, dramatic about the events that the world was facing. We could overcome some of them. Many challenges ahead, but uh, overall things uh, look uh, moderately positive.
0: (laughs) Very diplomatic. We will, of course, take a closer look at Portugal in a second. But staying with this long view of the European outlook, one of the things, of course, has been on everyone's mind here is how the geopolitical challenges are impacting the economy, particularly in Europe. So I wonder... With a backdrop of these risks, you know, Ukraine, Russia, the Red Sea and others, and of course, mammoth year for elections in 2024. What are some of your views on how that might impact the next coming months?
1: Let me go back a little bit, then jump the present conjuncture and talk to you a little bit about the medium term. Europe played very well in the face of the COVID crisis, both in sanitary terms and uh, economic and financially. We had a very rapid response, providing stability uh, and predictability uh, to our citizens. Uh, I uh, am totally convinced, actually, that Europe is one of the pillars uh, of sustainability and stability in the world today. And this was uh, due certainly to the Hard work we we did before COVID and during COVID. So this is uh, how um, we are playing today with the monetary, fiscal, uh, regulatory, all sorts of economic policies. And Europe must continue to uh, step up to its duties uh, in the world. Uh, many of these conflicts are very close to the European Union. Uh, some of them are in Europe, uh, so, so to be more precise, uh, and, and we have to uh, continuously uh, increase the presence of Europe in these domains to be part of the solution. We have a new political cycle uh, in Europe this year. You mentioned elections. It's very important for us to launch this um, with a view of complete some of the key parts of our institutional landscape that are still to be completed. I'm, of course, uh, mentioning the banking union, the capital markets union. Uh, we know that it takes uh, a long period of discussions and negotiations to to make progress on on these subjects but we cannot stop them at all because they are key for the future of europe and for the presence of europe also in the international financial system so my best take uh, on that uh, as of today is well europe must be very proud of what uh, it achieved at this stage we have a much larger labor market we are much more flexible economically we have much better institutions as well because this has been a process it's not a one-shot game and this has to continue
0: well, speaking of resilience, and perhaps, of course, both of us could be a bit suspect here, but a country that has been having a momentum and really has used that word resilience quite well is our home country of Portugal. Yep, Particularly indeed. over the past decade, really, it it is completely different uh, in terms of stability and how it's viewed internationally now. So I want you to now take off your European hat and put back the governor of Bank of Portugal and actually talk to me a bit about, you know, consumer confidence back home and uh, what is your assessment of the situation there now?
1: Very good. That's a much more comfortable hat, (laughs) especially this week in which I am preparing to go to Frankfurt to the next governing council meeting, which is uh, next week. So I'm going to start with a number, a very impressive one, the labor market. Uh, There are two dimensions uh, in which the labour market in Portugal is really setting the scene. One uh, is the upgrading skills. Portugal had very big handicap uh, in terms of the school level, school attainment of our population that for decades, maybe centuries, was kept very, very well. But that changed quite dramatically in the last couple of decades, which pays tribute to the decade that you mentioned uh, of transformation in our economy. It's a key ingredient to that. And we were able to move the uh, entry level of schooling into the labor market of uh, our young generations from uh, a very low share uh, of uh, college and even secondary uh, schooling levels of completion to top European figure the number is really impressive it it came from 40 percent of young people entering the labor market with at least the secondary level of education to 85 percent. this is a big change this is above the euro area average so this is one thing how does this materialize it materializes in a labor market that is upskilling and it's quite dynamic so this is the second number The increase in employment in Portugal uh, in the last uh, few years was five times faster than the Eurozone. And this uh, is very important uh, also because the Eurozone showed quite a quite dynamic labor market, a significant increase uh, in employment. But Portugal was the main contributor uh, to that in terms of, in relative terms, we are a small economy, but five times. Growing five times more than the Eurozone was key for the success that that you mentioned. So this then has uh, huge implications. First of all, uh, we can now be ambitious. Something that back uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago we could hardly be. Because with no skills, with very low levels of qualification, that will be very difficult to ask for an economy to, to grow based on skills if we don't have the supply of those skills. So now we can really step uh, into this level of qualifications and the level of skills in the economy and be uh, more productive as well. Uh, this has a, an impact uh, on, on economic growth. So we are converging to the uh, average of the eurozone. And the second pillar for Portugal is the financial one. We now have uh, balanced public accounts. Public debt over GDP is falling quite rapidly. Actually, it's the fastest falling figure for European countries. We will be already below 100% at the end of 2023. And our financial sector, the banking sector especially, is now uh, top-ranked in Europe. We have the best bank uh, in the stress tests that were implemented by by the ECB uh, in European authorities in 2023. And those are really great news for us.
0: Now, Portugal is also heading into an election year. And of course, one of the issues as campaigning is starting, and it's all emerging when it comes to the financials is the issue of real wages versus the reality of inflation and the cost of living. Uh, looking under that prism, what are some of your thoughts on, you know, could the election change that? Could that inspire consumer confidence just you know your thoughts as we head into that moment
1: well elections are a regular thing in democracy so we should not be scared about elections (laughs) at all i think following the adjustment program and all the policies that were implemented after that especially in the last 10 years they showed a way for us it was its success pass uh, that really proves how stabilizing economic policies can provide well-being and growth and employment to the population so I don't think that will be challenged uh, we will remain focused as a country in this upskill in providing financial stability that's that those are the main ingredients that I see uh, right now uh, Portugal is a country in which the European uh, construction always uh, had a huge support. So our participation in the elections for the European Parliament will also uh, follow this tone. So uh, I don't see reasons for concern, but it's again a new opportunity for uh, new leadership and for those uh, policies to be redrafted in this context that I think will continue.
0: Something we will, of course, be following when we approach March 10th here on Monocle Radio. Mario Centeno, muito obrigado. Thank you very much for joining us. That was the governor of the Bank of Portugal. there joining us here in Davos. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The House of Switzerland is once again bringing together under one roof the Swiss delegation, international guests, partners and media at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. As one of the largest event spaces at the Forum, it's played host to some of the most important discussions this year. And to give us a sense of how that has been is the organiser, Alexander Edelman, the head of Presence Switzerland. Hello, Alexander. Bon dia. Nice to see you again. We have
4: to switch back yeah, to English. <laughs> yeah,
0: of course. Now we have to switch back to, to English. Otherwise, uh, the portuguese will be taking over <laughs> the program. Nice to see you again from uh, last year. I guess let's uh, g- compare from the last time we saw you, which was, uh, I believe, uh, exactly a year from now, a year ago from now. What are some of your key takeaways from this year's edition so far?
4: Hmm. So in the meantime, it's it's obvious, but many people have been saying that When COVID arrived, it was like a major crisis and say, okay, it cannot go to worst. And if you look at what's happening, (laughs) I wouldn't be qualifying it. But nonetheless, I mean, we have been living in a world where crisis, successively crisis, with consequences for the entire world. We had many crises ahead of that. But having something that is so concerning also for Europe and the US on the global scale, uh, it's a very egocentric way of saying things. But nonetheless, this is where we are. Obviously, people are a bit... I wouldn't. Yeah, lost. It's complex, and it's not that the attendees and the participants have all the solutions. But I think deeply what we feel talking to the other participants, talking to the organizers, talking to some of the officials in Switzerland is everybody is willing to find solutions. Which is not. I wouldn't say that at the end of the WEF all solutions have been listed up, and that <laughs> next Monday will be easier. But at least I do feel with different ways. People can disagree, but at least there is a strong commitment to dialogue. Uh, from many different countries, from different axes. Let it be at the House of Sweden or at the WEF. At least people are here from, again, different regions, different background. I mean, when you have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Iran attending and discussing with the Swiss Minister of Foreign Affairs, most probably they do not agree on everything. I was not in the meeting, but it might be different thing, but they're talking. And the fact that WEF is one of these moments where you have all these people meeting, talking, and... As long as we have that, I think we can still have some hope without under-evaluating the current crisis.
0: Well, it plays uh, very well with the theme of this year's annual meeting: this idea of rebuilding trust and providing a platform for such discussions to happen. Uh, what role does Swiss diplomacy play in that? In uh, that concept of rebuilding trust?
4: A major one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, most obviously the um, one of the key component of the Swiss brand is trust. I mean, usually if you buy something that is Swiss made, you do believe the label. It's kind of the same for diplomacy. Swiss diplomats are well known. If a Swiss diplomat says something, it must be true. And in this moment where instability, um, the risk of misinformation, all that things, I think it's, it's something important. And that value of consistency of Switzerland, we're not bragging about what we do. This is not very Swiss. <laughs> Some people think we should do more in communication fields. Well, I am from communication field, so of course this is my job to talk about it. But I think that kind of neutrality, not in the weapons exportation way, but the fact that the Swiss diplomat first of all look. At all the partners and trying to bring everybody to the table we still have the benefits of that trust label so in moments where we are rebuilding trust i think switzerland has a key role to play not only by being the host country of the wef but also by having all of the diplomats that have a swiss method of not explaining to everybody what to do but listening to everybody at least to be the connecting partner and i think that we still have in many different countries in crisis.
0: Well, you mentioned there the role of host and Switzerland is indeed playing host to the entire world during this week uh, here in Davos. Uh, What does Swiss hospitality on a global diplomatic level look like. Uh, of course, a country very well known for your good hospitality when it comes to the more, what people more might immediately think of hospitality sector as in the industry. But when we talk here about global diplomacy, that's a whole other way of playing host.
4: I think, again, bringing people there and not telling them what to do. We have a very humble way so we're proud of being humble. There may be something, <laughs> paradox in it, but nonetheless, it's something that, you see, when I see my colleagues in charge of the diplomatic task within the foreign office in Switzerland, they're really bringing people to the table that sometimes we're not talking anymore together. So that kind of that hospitality thing. Yeah, being an honest broker, that's always what we say about Swiss diplomacy, but it became even more important in the past years, and we still have that. And when I look at when, how Switzerland we have a public part, venues, we have panels and discussions that are really worth listening to. I mean, usually I say at the end of the week, I might be less ignorant than at the beginning of the week because listening to the panelists and so on, is really, it brings, I mean, you have so many people coming that are relevant, that it's fascinating to listening to them from different horizons. But for the part, more diplomatic part, we have many delegations coming i can't name them all here because something was not waiting to be public but nonetheless you have countries coming to the house switzerland talking together uh, and they trust us not to talk about that and they trust us not to have hidden journalists wherever and it's not that swiss diplomacy is bragging about it and saying, hey we reconnect people and saying that's again they trust us for being that honest broker of it it's something uh, important i think this is the dna of Swiss diplomacy, as well as you have world-famous CEOs, world-famous ministers, presidents on the walking on the streets of Davos, and nobody is going to go after them to get a selfie. And that very Swiss way of respecting the private sphere is also something that I think is very much appreciated by the attendees.
0: And being this, uh, as you were describing, as facilitator of these global conversations as well. Uh, Alexander Edelman, thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to catching up again with you next year. That's Alexander Edelman there. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally today, we've had an ear to the ground here at Davos all week. And so has Jessica Bridger, the journalist and consultant on urbanism. Hello, Jessica. Welcome to The Briefing. Hi, Carlota. Thank you for having me. So nice to see you here uh, within the cozy studio overlooking the not so snowy mountains today. It is slowly uh, melting away. But what has been your assessment of WEF this year so far?
5: So I think we've all heard a lot about you know, the crises that we're facing, the poly crisis and all of that. But I think there's something interesting to highlight, which is, WEF, like many of these other forums, the challenge is always about implementation. How do we get beyond just talking? And here, I think we've seen a certain amount of optimism, a certain amount of pessimism, but that's not really what WEF is about. It's about trying to realize the change. And because we have a lot of the people responsible for building prosperity and funding the change, I think we have reasons to be, I guess, quote unquote, optimistic that maybe we do it. And I think one of the things that struck me was, Um, UN Secretary General Gutierrez spoke about, you know, given the challenges that we have, given the rise in armed conflict, given existential challenges like climate change, how do we think that we're going to affect change if that's what we wanted to do before these challenges became so dire? And I think that that's an open question, right? We can't take that as, oh my God, now there is absolutely no chance to implement change. I think it's Now with these challenges, perhaps there's more room. Can upheaval actually help to bring change? Well, and the
0: theme here uh, is trust, rebuilding trust. How does that concept, which is quite abstract really, how does it hit the ground in a practical sense?
5: I think that it's not as vague as it sounds, right? Without trust, civilized societies aren't tenable. They can't do anything, regardless of ideology or ism or what, you know, shade of democracy or non-democracy a country is. Without citizen trust and societal trust in leadership and in business and in NGOs and other institutions, nothing is possible. So I think here at WEF, we've seen open dialogue both in public and behind closed doors about building consensus, building up dialogue, and that's essential for trust between parties at the level that we see at WEF, the heads of business, national leadership. But it's also essential to begin the process of discussing trust more broadly. And that's happened. And there's something interesting that always gets released at WEF, which is Edelman's Trust Barometer. And it measures trust across four sectors. So NGOs, business, government and media. And this year in the 24th edition, similar to last year, business is rated as the most trustworthy of the four which is quite surprising. Yeah, that is shocking. It's also seen as the most ethical and competent. But a key driver in this is business's role in driving societal innovation, in bringing innovations to scale and into people's lives. And at a time when personal worries, so direct worry about existential threats is rising. A lot of things that were abstract maybe four years ago are no longer so abstract. And I think that business is seen as being active and responsible and agile and reactive to change.
0: Now, a lot of the uh, the conversations here today, uh, here at Davos this week, have also been around uh, funding for Ukraine and particularly the efforts on urban rebuilding and reconstructing um, the country once the war is over, and that expands to a, a variety of sectors, both private and public and governance. What have you been hearing, and what are perhaps some of the key topics for urbanists here?
5: So, I think one of the central, interesting key topics is the role of interest rates because global interest rates directly impact urban and rural development. We've and here at WEF we've had ur- warnings from UNDP, from the IMF, from World Bank about how high interest rates raise the debt burden on exactly the places that need funding for development most. A lot of this development takes shape in the built environments whether it's new hospitals and schools or infrastructure, and if interest burden, interest rate burden is so high, none of that development can happen. So that's kind of one worry that is an open question as uh, national governments and as economies look at the interest rate situation over the next 12 months. But also we can look at how alternative funding might work and where does the private sector step in? Hmm. For example, I think it's nice to look at how You know, various investment banks and alternative investment managers have been dealing with infrastructure. For example, BlackRock just acquired GIP, which is General Infrastructure Partners, in a bid to lead, taking advantage of the massive amount of infrastructure that the world needs to affect a lot of these changes that we talk about here in DeVos.
0: Now, one thing that uh, I really want to discuss with you is the latest awkward news from Boeing. This came in uh, last night and has uh, been creating a bit of a buzz here in in Davos on the ground. We're talking about Anthony Blinken's plane breaking down on the way out of his Davos trip when he was at Zurich airport.
5: So this is a topic which is always interesting to discuss, and that is the poor Boeing 737. So Blinken's plane was not part of the max generation, which has become infamous with two crashes and now the latest door coming off Mm mid-flight incident. And what's not funny about that is that it's a retrofit of an old airplane with newer, larger engines that it was never intended to support instead of innovating. So here again, we have a connection to this idea of innovation, and when companies fail, it can have impacts that not only become damaging to the company you know people are now saying if it's Boeing I'm not going and Anthony Blinken indeed did not get to go he a replacement plane had to
0: be sent and i believe political reported this morning that sadly the press pool traveling with him had to made make their own arrangements back to the United States. So hopefully they're finding their way through Zurich Airport as we speak. Now, right before we go, I just want to talk to you about uh, this area of Switzerland. You're up here a lot for skiing and hiking. This is a region that you know quite well and a sort of home for you as well, home base. So what happens next
5: here in Davos? So next all the car carriers come and take away all the black vans, all the kind of fake facades that have been built over the main street here get taken down and Davos returns to its normal functioning. It's a ski town. It's very nice. But I can't help but think that WEF, as everybody up here calls it, because otherwise it gets confusing if you call Davos, Davos, and <laughs> you're really talking about the World Economic Forum annual meeting, which is a little bit clunky. But I think the brand Davos could actually be better leveraged. So putting on the kind of monocle view, couldn't we look at how Davos itself as a, as an urban place could leverage the fact that it's become a center for these national and international and global discussions and You know, there is work toward that. The Sister Village Closters has the Closters Forum, and this and other events could be boosted. But I do have to put in a plug for the fact that we have some of the best skiing in the
0: Alps. Jessica Bridger, thank you very much for joining us. And that's all for this special edition of The Briefing at the World Economic Forum. It was produced by Tom Webb and Christy O'Grady here in Davos and our studio managers back in London were Tamsin Howard and Steph Chungo. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. We'll be live from London then, but tune in to Monocle Radio for more coverage of this year's World Economic Forum's annual meeting. I'm Carlotta Rabello. Goodbye and thanks for listening.